Oh God, this morning, um, as we feel the crispness of the air and see uh, the beauty of the creation all around us, we are once again reminded how awe-inspiring you are, the one who created all that we see. And God, as we gather together this morning after a week that held many different things, um, hopes and joys, frustrations and sorrows, we pray now that as we give our attention to your word that you would meet with us through your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us? Would you help us to see more fully who Jesus is, all that he has done for us, the work of your spirit, um, transforming us to be more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing in um, our series in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to start by reading really the last paragraph in chapter 6, and um, we're going to do sort of a Reader's Digest version of chapter 7 <laughs> this morning. So, Nehemiah 6, starting at verse 15. Nehemiah says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell, uh, and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonahan, Je Jehohanahan, something like that, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And then there are 60 verses of names and numbers of people. And uh, I inflicted that upon you a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were going to scroll through it like movie style here, but we got confused on the text. So, <laughs> verse 66, after reading a bunch of names, it says this, the whole assembly together was 42,360. And then verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And this is God's word. Amen. Somebody said to me already this morning, I read Nehemiah 7 this week, and I have no idea how you're going to talk about that. So won't this be fun? <laughs> so a couple of... Um, about a month ago, my oldest son Ezra and I, um, if you don't know, we, our family moved to Colorado to join you here at the table over the summer, and we've seen these beautiful majestic peaks, 
and we thought, we got to climb one of those. And so about a month ago on Labor Day, Ezra and I climbed to the top of Mount Autobahn, which is 13,000-something feet. I know you're supposed to do the 14ers, but we're just easing into it, I guess. Um, but it was probably a really terrible choice for easing into anything because it was definitely the hardest hike either of us has ever done. We made it harder by parking in the wrong spot and adding three miles to the beginning of the, the hike. And so I think it was an 11-mile round-trip hike or something like that. And it was hard, and it was really windy, and it was cold. And by the time we had reached the saddle, which is about maybe a quarter or a third of a mile below the summit, uh, we were tired. And we got to the saddle, and we at the saddle encountered a guy who had already passed us on the way up, made it all the way to the top, and was on his way back down, which was really encouraging. <laughs> and, and we're standing there catching our breath at the saddle, and he says, uh, you know, and I kind of made a joke, like, is it, is, it, um, is it calmer at the top? Like, has the wind died down? He said, oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, and then he said, um, he said, beware of the false summits. Beware of the false summits. You know, a false summit is a point when you're hiking as you're moving up towards the peak that it looks like you're almost to the peak and then when you get there you realize that there's a peak that you couldn't see yet and it's higher up and further on and 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 you're not there yet beware of the false summits it was good advice because we were exhausted but he was saying to us it might look like you're there but you're not there yet it might look like we're there, but we're not there yet. And that, I think, is in summary the message of Nehemiah 7. We've been looking at this book, and we are really at the midpoint in this book. There are 13 chapters in uh, the book of Nehemiah, and we're right in the middle. And up to this point, the book has focused almost exclusively on the man, Nehemiah himself. Um, the book kind of reads like entries in his journal as he has done the work of leading God's people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And here we see that the wall is finished. Uh, he says twice, right? Once at the end of chapter 6, and then right at the beginning of chapter 7, the wall is done. The wall is finished. And then he says, And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were greatly afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work, building the wall, had been accomplished with the help of our God. Uh, there's something supernatural in, in this work of building this wall, a four-and-a-half-mile wall around the city of Jerusalem in 52 days. Um, it, 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 this wasn't simply accomplished through human effort. And there's much to celebrate here. And it would be easy, I think, for the book of Nehemiah to just end now. You know, God called him to build the wall. He came, he built the wall, they finished the wall, everybody celebrated, hurrah, and then the book ends. But Nehemiah 7 is here, I think, to say it might look like we're there, but we're not there yet. We're, we're only halfway there. Beware of the false summit. And I have to say, it's, it's been uncanny <laughs> moving through this book over the last seven chapters, I guess, because... Uh, I've been a pastor 15 years. I don't think I've ever um, worked through a series in a book where the circumstances in the book so closely paralleled the circumstances of, of like our own experience. Um, we started this series nine Sundays ago on August 15th. We took a couple Sundays off in there. 
So nine Sundays ago, we were meeting outside. We, were, we knew God was calling us to regather as a church after a period of not being able to meet in person, not being able to gather together. Um, and so we knew that we, God was calling us to regather. But the question is, what is that going to look like and where are we going to meet? And we start this book, Nehemiah, where the people of God are returning from exile and they don't have walls. And fast forward, what, eight weeks last Sunday, they finish the wall and we move into a new building. Um, it, it's incredible. And I think that maybe that continues this morning as we see this chapter saying to us, beware the false summit. It might look like we're there, but we're not there yet. It might look like we're there, but we're not there yet. And so this chapter, I think, serves as like a caution. There are three cautions in this chapter that we need to listen to. And the first one is this, though the wall is finished, the work is not done. In the book of Nehemiah, though the wall is finished, the work is not done. Though the table, church, we have a building, and I said this last week, at some point we'll probably do a meeting and explain what our arrangement with this space is. We don't own this space, um, but we have a place to meet. We have walls. And though we have walls, the work is not done. I think that's important to, to, to remember because a building project can become an all-consuming thing. Um, so much energy, so much effort, so much resource goes into the acquiring or the renovating of a building that you can get to the end of it and forget why you did the project in the first place. I mean, uh, some of you surely have had that experience with just like home improvement projects or maybe you've done a remodel in your house where it's so disruptive and so much of your time and attention and, um, you, you know, it goes into the work of rebuilding, remodeling, that um, it just, it disrupts everything about your life. And you can get to the end and be so wrapped up in the building process that you forget that the building is for a purpose. It's not to have, you know, a shinier building. It's to, so that to enable life to function in a better way. And the same, I think, could be true for a church and maybe... Um, even our own, when there's this flurry of activity to get a space ready and so much attention and so much, you know, of, of everything just goes into, we've got to clean this space up. It only smells a little bit now, um, <laughs> you know, but it will get better. It will get better. And we're not exactly sure what's next. We begin to lose focus on what the building is for. And twice Nehemiah says, we finished the wall. We finished the wall. But like I said, the book doesn't end there. We're only halfway through. So the question then is, what's next? And Nehemiah, I think, answers that question in verse 4. He says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. The walls are done, but the people within the walls are few. I've said this sort of uh, a few times, but it's been kind of in the background, I think. The point of building the wall was never the wall itself. But the point wasn't simply to just build a wall and then go, okay, we did that task. God must be really pleased with us now. The point is never just to have a physical structure, but the wall and the building are there to serve a purpose. You know, there's, there's no place in Christianity for empty shrines. The building is there to enable God's people to gather for worship. And really, that's what the whole second half of the book is going to be about. We're going to see the, the people of God recommitted to the word of God and regathering for worship and renewing their covenant with the Lord himself. 
that the only reason that we need a building is so that so we have a place we can gather. We have a place where we can worship. So I don't know how that strikes you. Um, because the, the reality is that for thousands of years, God's people have affirmed that the sort of high point in the week, or the, the climax of, of the week of, of followers of God is gathering together to glorify God together. Um, that, that yes, we worship God on our own, and yes, we have good work to do, but we, we reach this crescendo as we gather, as, as we sing, as we hear God's word preached and read, as we celebrate the sacraments, as we give, this is the high point of our week, gathering for worship. It's this time where people of diverse backgrounds come together as one. And that's an incredibly profound moment as we are, I think, realizing more and more the, the division that racks our world. We come together as one despite different race and ethnicity, different age and experience, different backgrounds, different personalities. We come together and we sing with one voice. We listen to God's word together. We celebrate around one table. We share a meal together. And I know that that's not as central to the lives of Christians in the West today as it has been for thousands of years. In fact, just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who said to me, I don't really care that much about what churches do or say. I just care about the Bible. And I think that's a very common idea um, in Western Christianity today. And what I thought but didn't say to that person was, that's because you've been discipled by American individualism. Uh, far more than you have by the Bible that you are saying that you listen to. Because as soon as we open and read the Bible, there's no place for the sort of like me and Jesus individualistic uh, experience of Christianity. Worship, the gathering to give glory to God. I mean, think about this. Worship is the only thing that we can say with absolute certainty that we will be doing for our entire lives, that we will be doing for eternity. I mean, in the, in the opening chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, worship was the highlight of their day. It, was, it says that they, they walked with God in the cool of the day. And then if you go all the way to the other end of the Bible in Revelation 21, 22, what you see is the multitude of the people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the throne of the Lamb in worship. Worship is the only thing that we can say with certainty that we will be doing for eternity. And so for us, I think that means, that means two things. It means, first of all, that faithfulness looks like eagerly and joyfully prioritizing worship as God's people. Um, that's what it means. <laughs> I, uh, I have a friend, it's only pastors that share this kind of stuff on Facebook, but a, a pastor friend of mine shared this article that I saw last week, the article was titled, Church is a Great Excuse for Missing Everything Else. You could read the article, but like the headline really sums the whole thing up, right? You get the point, right? Church is a great excuse for missing everything else. I would love it if I saw somebody who was not a pastor sharing that article <laughs> on Facebook. So would Brad, apparently. 
so you can find it and share it, and then your pastors will be really happy. (laughs) Second thing that this means, I think, is though we have a building, the work is not done. And we have the privilege of inviting people. You know, we could talk a lot more about the whys and the whats and the hows, but I think that's the bottom line. The wall is done. What does verse 4 say? The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. The point isn't to have an empty building. (laughs) Okay? So that's the first caution. Though the wall is finished, the work is not done. The second caution in this chapter is this. Though Nehemiah has been the focus, all of God's people are required. A couple weeks ago, I said this already, we encountered the first list of names. There was another list of names um, that I did not inflict upon you this morning. There are seven of these lists of names um, in the book of Nehemiah. And part of the reason for this, I think, is to correct an impression that would be easy to get if you just read through the book of Nehemiah um, up to this point, which is that this is a story about a hero named Nehemiah who does all this great stuff. Uh, Reading Nehemiah so far, it's like reading his journal entries where he talks about his effort to lead this work of rebuilding, and it would be easy to get the impression that this is a story about the person, Nehemiah. In fact, I was reading something last week in a commentary that that referred to the book of Nehemiah as the first leadership book in history. You know, it's sort of like you read these like great stories of Abraham Lincoln or uh, other great leaders (laughs) whose names escape me entirely at this moment. Um, It's like this autobiographical, like I'm a great leader and this is one of the great things that I did. But Nehemiah cautions us against that misunderstanding, and he does that with this list of names. Like I said, there's seven of them in this book. And here, fascinatingly, I think, at the midpoint of this book, as he's warning us against this false summit, this false expectation that the work is done, he he goes back to Ezra chapter 2, and he basically just copies and pastes that list of the names of people that return from exile back to Jerusalem. It's the names of God's people that return from exile. And this is incredible. Like I said, up to this point, it reads like it's a story about Nehemiah. The rest of the book, after chapter 8, Nehemiah is only mentioned three times. So it sort of flops from about Nehemiah to about, uh, about the people and about God's work through them. And the clear message, I think, is this. All of God's people are needed for the work of rebuilding in this time. It's not just one person that's needed for rebuilding. It's not that we need one really gifted, really charismatic leader to lead the charge. And it's not just that we need like a couple, like a select, like an elite strike force to lead us in this time. All of God's people are needed. And I think that we sort of know that intrinsically. And I think we're seeing more and more, almost on a weekly basis, just how important that reality is, that all of God's people are needed. We're living through this time where the great man theory of history is like eroding underneath us, where we see almost on a weekly basis um, some big name, some prominent figure, some well-known, previously well-respected leader, either inside the church or outside the church, their, their, their platform and their, their life's work just sort of erodes in, 
in a moment of scandal, or in a long period of scandal that comes out in a moment. And we're seeing the, the harm that is done with this idea that what we really need is just a couple of really great people uh, to lead the way, to do all the work. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have r- listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which highlights this reality, but I think it's important for us to understand that if in this next season that we are going to work our way towards a healthier plan, (laughs) a healthier way of being as a church, um, a healthier approach to being the people of God together, then that's going to have to look very differently than putting a leader on a pedestal and then being shocked when they fall off it. And the change that we need doesn't reside only in the leaders. Of course it does. And actually, that's going to be the next point. Um, But the change doesn't reside only in the leaders. It does reside in the leaders, but the change doesn't reside only in the leaders. A change towards health requires the participation of all of God's people. See, when there's one charismatic leader doing all of the work, it's not just one person who is enabling that arrangement, right? And this list is incredible because it's so ordinary. If you or I had been alive during this time, 445 BC, this is where your name and my name would have found their way into the pages of Scripture. It's just a list of ordinary people, 43,000 ordinary people who happened to be alive and participating in God's work at that time. In the midst of God's ordinary, uh, in the midst of what God is doing, ordinary people's lives are made extraordinary because it is God who is at work in, in their midst. And the same is true today. This list describes eight different kinds of people. Uh, there are priests and Levites. Uh, we might think of those as equivalent to pastors and elders today. Um, there are lay people who are faithfully doing the work of rebuilding the wall and gathering for worship. There are the founders, you know, the, the people who were the first to return after exile. And many of you, I know, are some of the founders uh, of, of the, this church, uh, of the table, who've been here since the beginning. The ones who go first. Um, we were talking about this early in the week when we were wondering how in the world do you preach a sermon on a list of names. And Danny said, the singers were mentioned in there. And it was great because it was like, Danny was so excited. He's like, that's me. I'm included in that too. And, and you're included in there too. I mean, obviously not your specific name, but it includes all of us. All sorts of people are needed. There are people uh, with questionable parentage <laughs> listed at the end of this, this passage. And I won't go into all of the reasons for that. But, but, I, but I think what, it, what it's saying to us is even those people who are sort of on the fringes, Even those people who are saying, am I welcome here, are included. Even those people who are wondering, um, you know, can I come with my hurts? Can I come with my skepticism? Can I come with my doubt? And the Bible screams, yes, we need you. We need you. We need you because we need to structure the life of the church knowing that it's not only for the certain and the convinced, 
that it's, uh, churches go toxic when we only think about those who are fully with us. And we forget that we have to structure our lives around those who are on the fringes, those who are wondering, is this place safe for me? There are kids mentioned here. All sorts of people are needed. And this isn't just a blip. It's not just this one list um, says everybody's needed. This is the message over and over again throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Ephesians 4 says that God gives leaders to the church not so that they can build a platform for themselves, but God gives leaders to the church to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. It's all of us together participating in the work of God. All of God's people are needed as we rebuild in this time. We want 100% participation. That doesn't mean that everybody's participation looks identical, of course. The point is not who gets the most credit or who gets the most visible roles or or anything like that. The point is simply, how can we be faithful with what we have been given? How can we give faithfully with what we have been given? As we're working on this building, it has been great to see so many uh, people just come and pitch in and participate. And I love it. And I know many of us are tired. And let me just simply say, this wasn't my idea. This is in the passage, so this is what I've got to say to you. But, but let me even say more clearly, I am not saying any of this to try to squeeze more life out of you. That is the last thing I want to do. I know that many of us are hurt, many of us are tired, many of us are exhausted. And if your participation looks like simply being present, then please just go with that. We, we're, we're not... We're not trying to get more out of you. We want more for you. We want to bring you to Jesus because he's the one who heals you and who is with you. And we want you to experience his life as the source of your life. If you're wondering, am I welcome? You know, I've been here once or twice. Is this place for me? Am I enough? Can I bring my mess? Can I bring my doubts? Can I bring my exhaustion? The unequivocal answer of scripture is yes. We need you. We need you. So the second caution, this is not all about Nehemiah. Everybody is required. All of God's people are required. The third caution is this, in this passage. Beware of this false summit. While everyone is needed, God will use transformed leaders. And I'm super nervous about the wording of that statement. Because I in no way mean to imply that there are some sort of requirements of for coming to God or who God can or will use. Um, but I do believe that the testimony of the Bible over and over is that God uses leaders who have been transformed by him. One of the things that I think happens when, you know, we read the Bible in small chunks for the most part, right? And we've been even reading like one chapter a week over the last several weeks. is still, you know, it takes maybe three minutes you could probably sit down and read the whole book of Nehemiah in an hour, um, something like that. But when we read it in small chunks, one of the things that we miss is some of the patterns that emerge over and over again over the course of the narrative. And I've been thinking about how to point this out, and I think now is the time to, to point this out, that one of the things we see in Nehemiah the person, not the book, but in Nehemiah the person, 
is that, yes, of course, God can use everyone and everyone is needed and God welcomes everyone. And while that is always true, at the same time, God, used, God loves to use transformed leaders. What does that mean? I, I, I mean, that's not my phrase, but it's probably not a biblical phrase, in, meaning it's not in the Bible. What is a transformed leader? A transformed leader or a transformed person is a person who, through the work of the Holy Spirit, has been weaned off worldly understandings of power and success. And is learning to lead out of their own being with God. A transformed leader is someone who has given up trying to change other people and is focused on trying to lead the hardest person to lead, which is myself, yourself, himself, herself. A transformed leader is someone who doesn't see leadership as a means of self-fulfillment, but rather as a means of self-sacrifice. And I'm saying all of this to myself because I know even in the church it's possible to lead in a worldly way. I know because I've done it <laughs> probably for most of my life. And where do you see that in this passage? Well, look at verse 5. Nehemiah says, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Over and over and over again, Nehemiah, when he's articulating a plan, he says, God put this plan into my heart. And it would be easy if you just read that once or twice to think that's just like a pietistic turn of phrase that people who know they're writing the Bible have to use. Because really, he just wanted to do this, but he wants it to make it sound holier or something. But, but this is such a pattern over and over again. If you read the narrative in larger sections, you start to see that, that this is what he's constantly doing. Nehemiah is constantly saying, I did this because God put it in my heart to do and he's constantly attributing his successes to God's work through God's people. And every time he's faced with a decision, he pauses to pray. I mean, is that how I live my life? Is that how you live your life? I mean, there's a decision to make. I got a plan so quick. <laughs> Nehemiah shows us that, that transformed leaders pause to pray. Every time he faces a decision, he prays. He reads scripture. He practices the Sabbath. He doesn't take himself so seriously that he believes he can just plow through. But he knows he needs time to rest. To put it really, really simply, he leads out of a deep awareness of who God is. He knows God personally. He doesn't just know about God. He knows who God is. Um week or two ago, I was um, hanging out with Todd Ansa, and he asked me if I knew this person, and it doesn't really matter who the person was, but he said, do you know this guy named Chris? And that's a yes or no question, right? Todd says, Bryce, do you know Chris personally? And I an it took me like seven minutes to answer him, because what I said was, I think I've talked to him twice, and I've read his book, and I really like his book, and I went to his thing once, and he invited me to do this other thing, but I didn't do it. Um, but we're friends on Facebook, and I think if I emailed him, he'd probably respond to me. And, you know, that was like a seven-minute long answer, like I said. And, and Todd's like, but do you know him personally? <laughs> and, and it just sort of hit me, 
and I think I might have said this to Todd at the time, I think I know Chris about as well as I could possibly know somebody without knowing them personally. He's like almost a friend. <laughs> you know? Um, and it occur- that occurred to me this week as I was thinking about this passage because I think that some of us might describe, if we were honest, our relationship with God in those terms. I almost know him personally. I mean, I know that I could say that about my relationship with God for much of my life. I mean, listen to this. I've talked to him once or twice. I've read his book. I've been to his thing. We're friends on Facebook. He's invited me to a thing that I didn't go to. And I think if I asked him for something, he would probably respond. (laughs) But there's a vast difference, isn't there, between knowing that there is a God and knowing some things about him and actually knowing him. And for much of my life, I think I have treated Christianity and the existence of God like a principle that I'm really, really committed to. And less like a person that I actually know. And I think that if we're going to regather and rebuild in this season, that it's going to require the participation and leadership of people who know God, who actually know him, and aren't just committed to a principle about who he is. Because I think that when that, the idea of God as a principle that we're really committed to takes over the life of a church, it's when we start to hurt people. If we're going to regather and rebuild in this season, it's going to require the participation and leadership of transformed leaders, people who actually live out of and lead out of time spent with God. And I'm sure that there's going to be an opportunity to talk more about what does that mean and what does that look like and how do I do that um, in the future. There will be for sure. I don't know when exactly. But let me also say, like, if you can't wait, I would love to talk with you about that. I would love to talk with you about that. You know, in the last 18 months, the last 18 months have been so hard for many of us. Um, I noticed, uh, I just kind of, you know, sometimes like you see something and then it clicks that like, oh, that's a trend. I've seen that a bunch. And I saw something this week where somebody on Facebook was um, kind of sharing anniversary wishes with their spouse. And it it just kind of clicked that so many of those type of social media posts around birthdays and anniversaries have in the last several months talked about how hard the last year or two have been. And, um, you know, there's a lot of takes on what has happened during that time culturally. And I I believe that the pandemic has, really what the pandemic has done culturally has brought to the surface what's already there that we were able to ignore before. And in the hustle and hurry and the go, go, go of our lives and our culture, we were able to ignore a lot of the warning signs that should have been flashing at us like the tire pressure light on my car that I can't get to go off. But we just ignore it because we got someplace to get to. And the pandemic has like forced us to slow down. You know what, two years ago when when somebody said, how you doing? You either said good, which is a non-answer or busy which is a boast disguised as a complaint. And then busyness was taken off the table and everybody's life just got so much better, right? It was like, 
No, right? <laughs> what happened there? Well, when the busyness got taken off the table, it forced us to deal with the flashing warning lights saying something is wrong. And it's revealed many things about our lives, about our relationship, about our, our relationships and our priorities and so many things, right? It's been very revealing, but the pandemic, I think, has revealed that we are far more needy than we thought. Far more needy than we thought. And so the question for us now is, what do we do with that sense of neediness that we are now intimately aware of? And, and I think the reality is that becoming more aware of our neediness will either drive us to despair or it will drive us to Jesus. It will either drive us to despair or drive us to Jesus. The pandemic, I think, has revealed that Christianity is a really, really bad hobby. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Christianity, the gospel is good news. It's not good advice. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's a really bad hobby. And I think it's safe to say that none of us is going to emerge. And I don't even know what emerge means at this point. None of us will do whatever that thing is unchanged. The question is, which direction will we change into? We'll all be changed one way or another. And in our grappling with reality and our grief and our exhaustion, the question I think is this, will we somehow recover a passion for Christ and his mission or will we be driven away from Christ and his mission? And let me just say, gosh, <laughs> I know this sounds heavy. I know this sounds heavy. And so let me finish with this. Christianity, the gospel, the core message of Christianity is good news. It's not good advice. It's good news, not good advice. And that's why Christianity makes a really lousy habit, or hobby rather. It's a really bad hobby because if we think of Christianity as sort of like a, a, a series of interconnected lifestyle decisions, then what do you do with like the last year and a half when it's just been so hard and so discouraging so much of the time? And if we thought that Christianity was like a series of choices that we could make in order to live a more fulfilled life, and then we go through what many of us have gone through, um, that's a bummer. <laughs> But one of the things I've often observed about Christianity is that when it is described from the outside, it looks heavy. But from the inside, that weightiness is a safe harbor. Christianity lived as a lifestyle, as a hobby, is crushing. But Christianity animated by the Holy Spirit is beautiful and life-giving because it is weighty. I had a, I'll finish with this. Um, I had a, some of you and I know that Ashley and I lived in Scotland for three years when I was in grad school. Uh, we were both at grad school. And we, um, one of my professors was from the highlands and islands up north, rural, rural Scotland, where there are all these remote fishing villages. And he told this story about the reality of a lot of the reason why some of these villages are where they are is because there was a natural harbor there. And... And these little fishing villages, people have lived there and fished there for hundreds and hundreds of years because of the existence of a natu natural harbor. And, and what would happen is that a, a fishing boat would go out from the town and be gone for weeks fishing in the North Sea. And then that fishing boat would come back 
you know, filled to the gills with fish to take to market. And on that final stretch of the trip, there was a moment of peril as that fishing boat entered into the natural harbor because the way a natural harbor works is that there's a rock that forms a point. And as you're coming in, that rock, depending on the waves and the swell, it looks like it is going to be your undoing. And it looks like it could be the thing that has, you know, after weeks and weeks of work, you know, could just dash that ship um, on the rock and everything would be lost, the catch, and, and maybe worse. But my professor said that the, the, the strange irony is that on the other side, if you make it past that rock, it's the thing that keeps you safe. The very thing that seemed like it might be your undoing actually becomes the source of your safety. If we understand Christianity as a series of lifestyle decisions that will make our lives awesome, it will ruin us. Christianity is a terrible hobby, but Christianity isn't a lifestyle decision. The gospel is good news. It is not good advice. The gospel is the announcement that God has come to us in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our exhaustion to be with us and to bring us home. In Jesus, he, he takes on our flesh. On the cross, he takes, his, takes our sin and shame upon himself and he takes them to the grave and he rises again to new life and he sends his spirit to dwell in us, bringing life into the darkest places of our lives. And he invites us to respond to him, to live lives of adventure, not knowing exactly what the future holds, but with the promise that he will be with us. Amen. So let me see if there are any questions. Forgot to say this out loud, but um, you can text questions during the sermon of this number. Um, okay, so it worked this time. As an ordinary person, how can I get involved at serving at the table? Man. That's a great question. <laughs> um, so, I if you're asking about the mechanics, <laughs> you could come and talk to me, um, or Katie, or Danny, but give Brad, what, three more weeks, four more weeks? Um, there, there are, I, I would say this, we want to, as much as possible, help people identify their giftedness and serve in those areas, and there are always things that have to be done. And so I think the most um, pressing need, I was going to say for us right now, but I think this is probably true for churches all the time, is um, people to serve children, um, to serve in the table kids. And so, um, like I said, we have a, a training next week if you want to learn more about what that looks like. Um, the great thing about the church is that um, the church is a family the church is a, you know, the church is really a volunteer organization. Some of us get paid. God calls some of us to vocational ministry, but, but the work of the church is work that we do together. And so um, I would say that there are really no end to uh, the possibilities. And so I'm having a hard time, like, answering that in the abstract because really what I would want to ask you is, Tell me about yourself and wh what, what are you passionate about and what are you gifted in? Um, 
but there are no end of opportunities. Um, you know, there's stuff we'd love to do. We'd love to paint, re repaint some of this stuff. There's going to be work projects going on for a long time. Um, we need to, we need more cohort leaders. You know, we need more people who are willing to invest in and disciple others. We need people who are committed to praying regularly. Um, there's, there's no end of opportunities. So if you want to know how to do that, um, I think the answer at this point would be, you can talk to me or you can talk to Katie or you can, I guess you could, we could do it anonymously if you want to keep texting. I'll respond back <laughs> and that'd be fun too. Okay, let's come to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you use us, that you, um, through your word, speak clearly to us. And as we come to your table, would we experience, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time this morning, your goodness and your grace. That you cleanse of our, us of our sins in Jesus. That you reform us into the people that you've called us to be. And you give us your spirit to enable us uh, to do that work in our world. God, one of the questions that I think is so um, deeply tearing our culture apart is how can people who have significant disagreements get along? And so as we come uh, to this table this morning, would you knit us back together? Individually, would you remember us? Would you put our parts back together? And would you knit us together corporately as your people? As we are one body in Christ.